Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Aviation Avenue podcast. Folks, I'm very happy to be back with you recording another episode of our wonderful podcast. So, everybody, before we get to it, a couple of announcements, and then, uh, yeah. So, everybody, uh, I just wanted to say that I will be down at the MCAS Miramar Air Show on Friday, September 23rd, and, and Saturday, September 24th. So, it's going to be super fun. I'm really excited to go see another air show I've not been to in a long, long time due to the pandemic. So, I'm really looking forward to it and all. And uh, I hope to uh, maybe see some of my fans there. And, and yeah. So, and then the second, I will also be going down to the Pacific Air Show on Saturday, October 1st. I will be uh, at the Pasea Hotel um, lawn chairs, so uh, just look for me in either a, some kind of aviation shirt or, yeah. So everybody, today we're going to be talking about the A6 Intruder. This is an aircraft uh, which was produced by uh, Grumman and retired in 1997 by the uh, Marine Corps and, uh, and, also the, and also the Navy in the in, 97. Uh, so everybody, our guest uh, from the Naval Aviation Museum Foundation is going to be joining us. Um, yeah, we hope you guys enjoy it. Welcome back, everyone. It's great to have you with us. My name is Dwayne Thiessen. I'm the President and CEO of the Naval Aviation Museum Foundation. And each week on Tuesday and Thursday, it's our privilege to bring you a presentation about one of our exhibits or the various artifacts that we have in this amazing National Naval Aviation Museum. It's a phenomenal place and we look forward to bringing you here to see it for yourself. In the meantime though, we're going to bring you these presentations on Tuesday and Thursday at 11 o'clock. Today we have a very special presentation for you. We have retired Marine Corps Colonel Jerry Guy. He actually flew the A-6 and he's going to talk about the A-6 because it's one of his favorite aircraft. And I think you're going to enjoy this presentation. We look forward to your comments and your questions when we're done. Thanks for joining us. Colonel Guile. Thank you, sir. And thank you for the opportunity to talk about my favorite aircraft. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you're looking at the A-6 intruder for the first time, there's some of you out there who are going to say, well, that's an unusual-looking airplane or an odd-looking airplane. And I know some of you out there are even thinking, boy, that's the ugliest jet I've ever seen. Well, before you form that opinion, ladies and gentlemen, listen to a few of the things I have to say about this remarkable airplane. The A-6 looks unusual because it had a mission that had never been done before. And that mission was precision all-weather ground attack, an airplane that could bomb through the weather. Now that mission, and weather has always been an important issue with flying aircraft and delivering ordnance. It became critical during World War II. In Stephen Ambrose's great history on D-Day, he talks about the effect of weather. The, um, when the weather was clear, the B-26s over Utah Beach destroyed and blew apart most of the defenses that, that, uh, General, that uh, General Rommel had put in place. They did a great job on that. And as a result, the invasion was only held up for about an hour. On Omaha Beach, it was drastically different. The weather was so bad, 
The bombers couldn't get in to hit their targets, and as a result, they suffered. The troops got through by sheer determination and leadership, but they took tremendous losses. So the importance of it, and the importance was even more uh, overstated when all saw that movie Patton, when General Patton, uh, the German armor advance was advancing under the cover of weather. We couldn't use that enormous American air power. Well, he even had a prayer. Remember the movie? He had a prayer that he wrote in order for the weather to clear up. You think we would have learned our lesson, but after World War II, the jet generation had started up. And people sort of forgot about the weather. They started thinking faster airplanes until the Korean War broke out. The same issue. We could not use our, that enormous American air power in order to uh, support the troops on the ground. After Korea, the Navy and the Marine Corps said, that's enough. We cannot have our operations dependent upon the weather from now on. They wrote a specification for an airplane that could see through the weather and, and deliver ordnance. There were eight companies submitted 12 uh, design change uh, on that, and the one that won was Grumman Aircraft, and that resulted in the airplane you see in front of us right now. The A-6 Intruder. A-2F originally, and then in 1962, the A-6 Intruder. Now, the reason it looks the way it does, the, with the jet engine, the enormous requirements for payload and range, they could easily be satisfied with the jet engine. We'll talk about that a little bit about that later. But the real hard part of this was seeing through the weather, because the only sensor that could see through weather uh, uh, effectively was radar. And the state of the radar at that time was, in order to get a good enough ground resolution map with the radar, you needed a big, wide antenna. And that's why the, the two radars made by Norden that fit underneath here, they take up so much space, that's why you have to have a wide nose on the airplane. And but the Grumman, the engineers, with those constraints, they came up with some genius design uh, uh, features on this airplane. And I'll run over those just real quickly for you. Now, it's not just Jerry Gow that says what the, the, how genius these designs were. When I, reti I retired from the Marine Corps, I had a great job at Lockheed Martin Skunk Works. Now, if you don't know who they are, they're the guy that make all these secret jets like the Stealth Fighter, the SR-71. And I took a course there in conceptual aviation design. And one of the guest lecturers that came in there was the head of the conceptual design department for uh, Lockheed Martin Skunk Works. And the example he used for outstanding design uh, uh, creativity was my A6 intruder. So let's look at a couple of the design features on this. First of all, the radar, the airplane is so wide that she, they decided let's put the pilot and the bombardier next to each other to enhance the air crew coordination because they're going to be flying this thing in all weather uh, conditions. Secondly, they had to be able to lift an enormous payload. Now to do that, they've got to create lift. And what the intruder uh, designers did, they picked a wing with a high aspect ratio. Now, aspect ratio is just the, the wingspan divided by the mean core. So long, skinny wing, like a glider, gets more lift. And you can see up here, if you look, you can, also, you can kind of see if the wings were not folded, how long and wide and thin that wing would be out there to create lift that was required for the payload they wanted to carry. Now, in the, along with that wing, instead of putting a simple flap on the back, they put what's called a Fowler flap right here. Now, a Fowler flap is the most efficient of all, of all the flap designs. It comes out and down and creates a lot more lift because it increases the area of the wing. 
They even increased that uh, uh, to a greater degree because if you can look up here now, they designed the flap to run all the way out to the wingtip. On many aircraft, the flaps only go out to about two-thirds of the length of the wing because the outer portion is taken up by the ailerons that do the, that give the airplane its roll control. Well, they didn't use ailerons. On this airplane, they used these. You can see this little aerodynamic shape underneath the wing. That's a flap run. They ran those the full length of the, of the wing, and it kills lift on one wing so the airplane can roll like that without an aileron. And that gave them a, a Fowler flap that ran the full length of the, uh, of the wing and allowed it to, uh, like that, to even generate even more lift. So, other design features they had. Look where they put the wing. The wing is located high on the airplane. That increases the stability of the airplane for a bombing aircraft. It also does good things for your ordnance, folks. Look at the level of the ordnance here. The ordnance is where someone can stand up and put all the ordnance on the airplane. Very effective and very uh, useful like that. Um, the other thing you have is it's above the engine. You can take this airplane, very important for being aboard ship where you don't have much room, you can open the doors and work on the engines in what they call the shadow of the aircraft. And that made it, you can even run the engine and do troubleshooting on it with the tail over the water. So a very clever design for naval purposes. Now, let me check my notes. So design-wise, it's starting to look a lot better, isn't it? I thought so. But, you know, we don't buy airplanes on design. We design buy airplanes on performance. So let's take a look at the performance that this, uh, that this design criteria uh, came up with. First of all, I'd like to show you this slide right here. The impact of the jet engine on performance. And you can see right here, here's the Grumman A6 Intruder. This aircraft is the SDB Dauntless. That was the A6 at the beginning of World War II. And when you compare the two, you can see the enormous impact of the jet engine. The A6, again, are both two-seat bombers. The A6 is about twice as fast. It has just about the same range, but look at the payload. The SDB carried one 1,000-pound bomb. The A6 can carry 15 1,000-pound bombs. As a matter of fact, it compares really well with one of the strategic bombers, the B-17. Twice as fast and about three times the payload. So this is what the jet engine bought for the airplane. Now... It wasn't just bombs, though, that you put on the airplane. The A6 now could carry just about any airplane, any uh, ordnance in the inventory and deliver it with a high degree of accuracy. Uh, you can see the airplane right now with the load. This is 22 500-pound bombs. The airplane is actually capable of 28 500-pound bombs. Or it could carry those 15 1,000-pound bombs or five 2,000-pound bombs. Instead of 28 500-pound bombs, it could carry cluster munitions. Uh, for area targets and anti-armor operations. It could also carry, uh, capable of carrying those uh, very sophisticated mines, deep water mines that the Navy uses. And it could carry napalm. It could carry a wide range of 5-inch and 2.75 rockets. It could carry uh, missiles, the uh, anti-radiation missiles, and it could also carry the anti-ship missiles. So just about everything they had. And yes, it was nuclear capable. And by the end of its life, it could also deliver laser ordnance. So a wide range of ordnance. 
and all the ordnance arranged along that wing. Look how it lines up right with the center line of the, of the uh, center of gravity. You could put just about all those on without changing the center of gravity, and with the tanks lined up in that wing, well, this airplane, you didn't really have to have uh, a, a fuel management system that balanced the center of gravity on it. So it was a beautiful design. Well, what does design mean? It's great to have that capability, but what does it mean as far as operational capability? Well, let me show you the, the results of this design. Now you can see here, these are the types of tactical missions that the A-6 intruder was capable of doing. All weather strike, you can hit radar tar targets that are radar significant like a building or non-radar significant targets. It could work its way through the mountains on radar. Uh, it could attack stationary and uh, battlefield targets, stationary and mobile under all weather conditions. Close air support for the Marines. You could deliver close air support uh, with this airplane under all weather conditions. Anti-surface warfare, it could go after uh, ships, the small, small type ships, or it can go against uh, large warships. Mine warfare, suppression of enemy air defenses, uh, the airplane, it could do that. And it could act as a tanker and also do the nuclear strike, everything under all weather conditions. Now, the important thing to remember about this, all of these could be done without changing the configuration of the airplane. The only thing you had to do was change what was carried on the racks underneath the airplane. Okay? So, so it's really starting to look a lot better now, isn't it? Well, I thought so. But, uh for the operation force. Now, uh, it resulted in an airplane that could always do its tactical mission. Uh, in combat during Vietnam, the airplane was used for alpha strikes delivering heavy ordnance loads <coughs> excuse me, against targets in Vietnam. It did interdiction missions by hitting targets, bridges, and, uh, and infrastructure targets. The Marines could use it for visual and uh, all-weather uh, close air support. Uh, Unsolicited comment I got once with an aviation controller, Air Force controller, was, gee, if we had a few more of these Marine squadrons over there, we could have shut down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And um, at the top of its game, it was one of the airplanes chosen to play the precision aim placement of the minefields in Haiphong Harbor. So it had a great combat record in Vietnam. There are times when this aircraft was the only aircraft flying and delivering ordnance. El Dorado Canyon. The Gulf of Sidra freedom of navigation that happened during the Reagan administration the, uh, was a retaliatory strike because we had been attacked by some of their, uh, some of their missiles and then a bombing terrorist attack against a, a uh, Berlin discotheque. President Reagan said it's time to teach Muammar Gaddafi a lesson. F-11s from the Air Force came from out of Great Britain, but the A-6s came off the uh, aircraft carriers in the Mediterranean. They went in, they hit their targets precisely and got out without any casualties. And Operation Praying Manus was the last time the Navy sank some really some warships. In Iran, the uh, Iranians uh, sortied two of their, uh, of their frigates against, the, uh, against our fleet operations out there. They ran into the A-6s, the A-6s sank one and sent the other one back so damaged it limped into harbor and stayed there for years. In Desert Storm, the airplane was there at the end of its life, but it went out at the top of its, air, of its game, doing mining missions, strike missions, and the kill box interdiction. Uh, picking out the moving targets in the uh, in kill boxes and uh, over in the sandbox. They were able to find targets, target them, and open up with a laser and hit them with precision. So it had a great combat record. Well, enough about the theory now. I'd like to go up and show you the inside of the airplane and give you an idea of how it happened. It worked.
This is my seat in the airplane. I haven't been here in a long time, and it feels great to be here again. The pilot side is sat over on this side of the airplane. Now, the first thing I want to see that you notice, notice the seat configuration. The pilot sits higher and in front of the bombardier navigator, uh, very much like the cockpit of the uh, British Mosquito in World War II. Notice how high the pilot sits. He's up here. His legs are above the bar rail here. He's in a bubble up here, and despite the side-by-side -side seating, has very clear view over the bombardier navigator's head on all sides of the aircraft. Now, dominating his, screen, his position here is the, uh, what they call the VDI and later the ADI. This is the main attitude reference of the airplane. Now, it's a big television screen here, and they use that because in addition to the attitude of the airplane, they needed to have cues that told the pilot, uh, that gave the pilot indications of the, uh, the attack that's going on in the airplane and the status of the attack. So that dominates up here. It kind of spreads this, these uh, instrument scan out a little bit, but it was necessary to have it like this because of the, uh, the interface with doing the all-weather bombing mission. Now, on the left side, the throttles and all the controls used for the pulling the engine and uh, the aircraft. In the middle are all the controls that are necessary for flying the airplane in basic IFR operations. The TACAN, the radios, the transponder are here. And uh, these controls can be reached by both the bombardier navigator and the pilot. The air airplane was interesting in its configuration because it could actually have uh, different approach criteria than other single-piloted aircraft because he had an actual uh, co-pilot that could assist in his single-pilot functions in the airplane. Now, the bombardier navigator. Whenever I talked about my job in the airplane, I was always asked, could you take control of the airplane and fly it if the pilot got hurt? Well, you can see that's impossible. There's so many much avionics on this side of the airplane, there's no room for flight controls in the airplane. Now, the bombardier navigator's position is dominated by the radar screen right here. This is the radar screen, and these are the radar controls. The computer input is in this pedestal down here and this control stick. This controls the, comp uh, the cursors on the radar and the infrared. The computer input is here. The output is in these windows up here. We got the laser and the forward-looking infrared. This screen came up here, and the controls for the FLIRs out there. The input to them for bombing and navigation is still with this, with this uh, control stick here. Now, as far as the weapons, the five weapon stations are up here. This armament panel, you can take the type of delivery, decide how you want to spread the bombs out, the spacing, and how you want to do the attack. So everything was right here at the bombardier navigator's control, and the pilot could always check and make sure there's no mistake had been made over here. So that's the basic layout of the airplane and how it was flown. Now, having said that, now I'd like to take you out and show you how the A-6 did a typical mission, one of its hardest missions, and that is picking out a target that it couldn't pick out on radar. If you had to hit a target that was not radar significant, was not going to show up on radar, or a target that was amongst a lot of other radar returns so it couldn't be seen, you had to find offset aim points on the airplane. And this shows you the way we typically did a strike like that. This was a, uh, this is looking for a target that's in amongst a, uh, a building that's in a, uh, that's situated among other buildings so it would easily be confused. This takes quite a bit of work. 
for the bombardier navigator, the day before, he's going to do a target study, and he's going to look for offset endpoints, uh, aim points, calculate those, and he's going to make a set of radar predictions. He's going to make a, this is what they call a PPI, that looks like a, a basic uh, radar map, plan position indicator, and he's going to make an expanded view, what he thinks he's going to see uh, when he gets to the target. Now, before the, as the airplanes, uh, they arm up, man up the airplane, get ready to take off, he's going to set up the armament panel for the uh, effect that he wants on the target. Then he's going to radar navigate to using the A6 system to take him to the target. Now, along the way, this was not like a modern aircraft. If you had a system, it had an inertial navigation system, but if it was uh, within 10 miles, only had 10 minutes, that's what the airplane could do. Uh, you, you had, you had 10, uh, uh, 10 nautical miles had to be t uh, miles per hour air. It had to be done real uh, exact. You had to really keep the upda updating the system with the radar navigation checkpoints. When you get into the, in, uh, the initial point, that's when you want to take a radar check, uh, checkpoint and update it for the final time. This will get you within a few hundred yards of accuracy. Then you start looking for aim point one. Aim point one is one you're going to certainly see and clearly going to see. By hitting aim point one, you're going to go after that aim point, but you're going to get steering to the target area. You find that one, you start tracking that one, we expand the display, then you look for aim point two. That's going to be your bombing aim point. That's what you're going to use, and it's got to be beyond the target so you can track it till the end. That's going to be a more discrete target so you get a much more uh, accurate hit. At that point, the master arm goes on, the computer's in attack. All this time, the, pli the pilot's been monitoring the threats. He's going to follow the VDI steering, this pathway and this square right here, to get into the target area. He'll monitor it until it's near the release point. He squeezes the trigger. That uh, commits the pilot to the attack, and the bomb comes off the airplane. No one hits a button to put it off. The computer decides when it goes. And that's basically how we do that very de uh, demanding mission in the A6 intruder. What you should take away from this is, it's a very manual attack at that time, and it, did a, it took a lot of uh, coordination between the pilot and the bombardier navigator. Well, folks, I've tried to show you what the airplane is like and what it can do. Now, uh, maybe I haven't convinced you it's as beautiful as I think the airplane is, but the fact remains, for 33 years, this aircraft was the, was the uh, biggest offensive punch that the United States Naval Aviation had. It had the biggest inventory of weapons, it could carry the biggest payload, it could take them the longest range. It could do that, it could hit stationary and uh, uh, mobile targets under all weather conditions. Uh, when it got to the target, on land or on sea, it could hit that target no matter what the weather was, sunny day, rainy day, or, uh, or the black of night. I was extremely proud and happy to be a part of this uh, remarkable airplane. I hope you've learned something about it. And now it's time for me to quit talking and let you do the talking. So if there's any questions, I'll see, do the best I can do to answer them. Thanks so much, Jerry. And we do have a few questions today. Um, Lee says, did the E ever have issues with environmental factors affecting the attack suite? I was thinking Desert Storm. Uh, I've never had a problem with that. In it, it, I've never heard of any problems with any sand or anything else getting in there. Uh, it was uh, operated fully in, the, in Vietnam without any difficulties, and I've never heard of it having environmental factors or with the dust over there. 
But of course, you're, you're always concerned about that and uh, keeping the airplane clean. Okay. Jacob asks, what was the procedure for the nuclear strike profile given that it was a small attack aircraft versus a strategic bomber? Good question. Uh, for a nuclear attack, all the uh, uh, aircraft use the same, what they call the uh, lab system, low altitude bombing system, uh, based on either the target or a discrete point, initial point away from it. The airplanes would go in at low altitude, high speed, and they would do a pull-up maneuver. Now, when you did that, if you did a, the, the A6 had a computer-generated attack for that that was the most accurate form. You'd go in 100 feet, 500 knots, commit the attack, and the airplane would pull up on a 4G schedule, and it could throw a 2,000-pound bomb about three miles to get the target. And then you do a, a uh, essentially do a, uh, a half Cuban 8 to escape the blast. Well, they told us we'd escape the blast, and I took their word for it. Mike says, can you show us the avionics bay? Oh, the avionics bay? No, I can't put it down. Uh, the avionics bay... Um, you saw a lot of the avionics are in the nose, and the rest are located in the uh, in the cockpit. And there's also a there's what they call a bird cage that comes down in the back. They're spread out over the airplane, but uh, on these airplanes I can't open them up. Okay, the museums keeps them closed. And as a matter of fact, I doubt that all the avionics are in there. So Marshall says, Colonel, can you please discuss the capabilities of the tram turret under the nose radar? Sure. Uh, this is the tram turret down here. Target recognition and attack multi-sensor. That's a great question. This came in about the 80s, and it, what the, it has, this, this basketball-like turret down here, has a forward-looking infrared, a laser receiver, and a laser designator receiver. And that was for the use in, measure, in uh, uh, measuring the parameters for just a regular uh, dumb weapon attack or for a laser-guided attack. Now, an interesting part of the A-6, many of the uh, aircraft that delivered lasered munitions, they had to have an airplane overhead designating the target while they dropped a laser-guided bomb. Not so with the A-6. The A-6 could designate its own, uh, own ordnance or pick a target, aim the uh, FLIR at it, and then fire the laser at it so it's given its own direction. So it could do that, uh, its own lasing uh, cues. So the, it was completely independent when it dropped a laser bomb. So we've got a couple questions uh, surrounding the missiles. Uh, Robbie asks, how many missiles does this aircraft hold? And then Cooper wants to know if you ever had to fire one. Um, I fired an anti-radiation missile called a strike once. Now, aboard ship, we would take a, uh, we carried harpoon missiles. Now that's a cruise missile. You carry that on a parent rack. So you can carry five of those if you really wanted to. And we had different attacks for doing war at sea. And that'd be against a large target. You'd use a harpoon like that. Uh, and those are the missiles we had. We had defensive missiles as well for air to air engagements. So Katie says, do you know anything about the El Dorado Canyon mission executed by the intruder? Yeah, I think I covered that for you. I did, uh, uh, we talked about the El Dorado Canyon mission. All right. Uh, let's see, anything else that I didn't cover in there? Mm -hmm. What happened, I, I was in Germany at that time when this was happening. On, on that particular mission, it was a retaliatory strike. It was against Libya. Muammar Gaddafi was one of the bad terrorist actors at that time. A discotheque was attacked. You know, he... he he had sent some airplanes out. They, he tracked us with some missiles, some of the airplanes that were doing freedom of, of uh, 
the sea's operations in the Gulf of Sindra, which Muammar Gaddafi claimed to be his territorial waters. He shot a couple of missiles at our aircraft. As a result, we nailed that, uh, uh, that missile site, and we also hit the boats. Uh, he sent out a, a missile boat to try and attack, and the A-6 uh, shot that boat and claimed it. As a result, he sent some terrorists over into the uh, Berlin discotheque, where some of our uh, military personnel were, uh, were just relaxing and on liberty, and it set off a bomb, killed some of our folks over there. That's when President Reagan said he needs to be taught a lesson, and he picked the A-6s. Now, the A-6s could have done both missions, but they didn't want it. It would have taken two days. So what they did is they, they brought in the F-111s, and you might recall uh, the France did not let the F-111s come from Great Britain across France to do it. They had to go all the way around in a really long mission to get in there. The French Republic after that, the people in France, they were upset that their government hadn't let them come through there because they thought Muammar Gaddafi needed a lesson. Well, the strike went off. The Air Force, uh, they lost an F-111, unfortunately. The A-6s got in and out, of and they did teach them a lesson. If you remember, after that, Muammar Gaddafi was pretty much scared straight. You know, he, stopped, he throttled back a lot, and he let the Lockerbie crews, he turned them over. And after that, he really catered it, because they had done what I considered the right thing. They threatened the power structures, what he needed in order to stay in power. He knew right at then that the, air, the American aircraft could have come in and hit their air defenses and then hit the other armed forces, which he relied on as a dictator to maintain power. So... Uh, that's about the most I know about that. I know some of the people that flew on it, and it was a... It was a great mission, highly, uh, perfectly executed, without loss. So Michael sends us a question, he says, that is based on a sea story of sorts. He says, I've heard about the radar on the intruder and the manual suggesting to kick it to restore functionality in the case of failure. Can you confirm or deny this? Uh, I'm about a few hundred hours in the A6A. The A6A... It was probably an airplane that was developed before the electronics were really available. And the computer, if you saw the pedestal when I was sitting in there where the control stick was on the bombardier navigator side, there, it had a drum on the computer. That's where all the programs were stored, on a drum. Look at the mechanical drum on an aircraft that could pull six and a half Gs, okay? So there were times when you could turn the computer on, you actually hear this drum whirring and spooling up at, at, when you turned it up. Well, if you didn't hear that, we always thought that, well, maybe that thing is just stuck. So we kicked the pedestal in that, and I think I broke it loose one time, actually. But it was the computer and not the radar. The radar sits in front, and there's a bulkhead there. So that's probably what you're thinking of. So that's, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. All righty. Uh, we got time for one more question here, and it comes from Miss Heather Taylor. She says, what words of wisdom from your experience with the A6, would you offer to our generation of upcoming engineers and pilots? Oh, words of wisdom. <laughs> Study as much math, science, and engineering as you can. When I went to the Naval Academy, I got a ton of math, science, and engineering, but I majored in a language. Once I got to work for Lockheed Martin, I wish I'd learned a lot more math, science, and engineering to help uh, on the design of future aircraft. That's what I got involved with, and I, I learned it along the way. But focus your, your studies. If you want to do that sort of work, focus your studies on as much math, science, and engineering as you can. All right. 
Thank you so much, Jerry, for being with us. We appreciate it. Uh, thank you all for being with us today as we learned more about the A6 Intruder. And join us for our next production, Treasures of the Collection, with Mark Levitt, museum archivist, and Dina Lynn, museum curator. It'll be Tuesday, April 28th at 11 a.m. Central Time. Thanks, everyone, and have a great day. Well, everybody, that was our episode on the A6 Intruder. We hope you guys enjoyed that. Thank you to Jerry Gill, a retired U.S. Marine Corps veteran, and Dwayne Cheeson. Uh, we hope you guys enjoyed it, and uh, make sure to follow me on Instagram, Aviation Avenue Pod. Subscribe to my YouTube channel, Braden Piscopo. Uh, become a patron at patreon.com slash Podcast. Uh, use listener support to support my podcast using the link on any uh, podcast platform. And we will see you next week here on the Aviation Avenue Podcast. So long for now, everybody.